Remember the name, Pestroy DDT. It spells certain death to all insects I've mentioned so far, and others too. There must be a catch to it. Maybe Pestroy hurts humans too. No, sir. It harms only us, the citizens of Buckham. Go back to the 1940s and you can hear a lot of jovial, confident ads like this one for a miraculous new substance, DDT. A lot of those ads are on YouTube now. And when you watch them, you want to reach through the screen and stop the people in them from picking up those cans of DDT. In one of them, there's a woman, a 1940s housewife wearing a checked apron and holding a paintbrush, and she's literally slathering the walls of her home with a coat of DDT. In another one, there's a man spraying DDT under his couch cushions. There's even one where a scientist stirs DDT into his food and eats it to prove how safe it is. It's easy to see these images and hear the mid-century announcer voice and think that this carefree attitude belongs to the past. But though DDT was eventually banned, it was never fully banished. And DDT is just one of many poisonous chemicals sold to Americans for use in our homes and gardens. Today on the show, we're talking about how poison becomes a household product. And once it's out in the world, can you ever really get rid of it? I'm Alex Perrine. And I'm Laura Marsh. This is The Politics of Everything. DDT is thought of as an example of successful environmental regulation. It's a dangerous chemical that was banned, in part because of the efforts of Rachel Carson. Her book, Silent Spring, exposed the poisonous effects of the pesticide and spurred sweeping change in the 1970s. So a lot of people know that part of the story, but what they may not know is that DDT didn't actually disappear. We're talking today with Elena Konis, the author of How to Sell a Poison, The Rise, Fall and Toxic Return of DDT. Elena, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So can we just establish what is DDT? Very, very simply put, it's a chemical that kills insects. DDT stands for dichlorodiphenyl trichloroethane. And for obvious reasons, the (laughs) the popular way of referring to it became DDT. Why was it used in the first place? Where did it come from? It was synthesized for the first time back in the 1870s. And in the 1930s, a Swiss chemist was looking for new chemicals to kill bugs. At the time, we were using some really toxic things to control insects on crops and elsewhere, things that contained lead and arsenic. And this chemist was going through some compounds to see if there was anything better out there, and he stumbled across DDT. And it became an incredibly important chemical during the Second World War because as something that was so much safer than the previous generation of insect killers, people started using it in ways that we had never used insecticides, as they were then called. They started dusting them on and spraying them on people, spraying them in their bedrooms, on their mattresses, on their clothing. So it's really the chemical that's associated with mid-century. It really is. One of the things I remember hearing about DDT is that it was particularly useful in controlling malaria. Yes, and this is part of the reason why it became so popular in the Second World War. We very quickly realized that if you covered areas where mosquitoes were breeding with DDT, you could really reduce the spread of that disease. So in the Second World War, we sprayed, especially in the Pacific, we sprayed entire islands with DDT Mm. and sprayed it from above using warplanes that were rigged with massive tanks so that the DDT was really 
just rained down. And of course, it didn't just kill the mosquitoes. It killed flies and beneficial insects, too. It had these unintended consequences that folks immediately weren't too concerned with. It sounds like it was treated as sort of a miracle chemical. We were using it with abandon. At any point, were people then concerned about side effects? Were they concerned that it might actually not be a miracle chemical? Absolutely. So this was a chemical that was being tested in the 1940s by folks kind of in a lot of different places. And U.S. government scientists were just kind of one group that was studying DDT. The Nazis were studying it at the same time, and they actually were really worried about its unintended consequences. And so mm. they shelved it and decided not to use it. And in the U.S., there were scientists who were working in the entomology division, essentially, of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, who were just so taken by its power that they just decided to move forward with it. But then there were scientists at the Food and Drug Administration who were really worried about some of its effects and said, we should probably study this for at least seven, eight more months before we go any further. And the Army said, OK, thank you for your opinion. You guys can keep studying it. We're just going to go ahead and use it. <laughs> it seems like there are two things here. One is that the poison that's around could harm other animals, including humans, just directly. But the other is, even if it didn't, just removing a huge chunk of the ecosystem, you know, just removing all insects is also really bad because insects do things. Exactly. They keep plants healthy. They pollinate things. They contribute to soil health, all this stuff that you need to have a functioning agricultural system or ecosystem more generally. You have to have some insects. Absolutely. There was this farm columnist and he also had a radio show back in the 1940s, Channing Cope. And he, a, a bunch of DDT manufacturers sent him DDT because they were like, oh, he's got a huge audience. Let's get him to talk about it on his show. And he put it like on his screens and on his door and on his cat and on his pig and on his wife. You know, he put it everywhere. And like after a couple of days, he was like, this is an incredible chemical. And it also just really scares me because if we kill all the insects, he was like, we're going to be living in a world without flowers, without fruit, without vegetables. Like, what are we going to be left with? And some people heard that and they were really alarmed. And some people heard that and said, ah, that's exaggeration. Just you're going too far. Don't worry. It's never going to get that bad. So there were concerns from early on. What brought this to Rachel Carson's attention? Late in the 1950s, she heard about a lawsuit on Long Island where somebody was suing the Department of Agriculture locally, but also the National Federal Department of Agriculture for spraying DDT to control a pest that was affecting large shade trees. This person, her name was Marjorie Spock. Her brother was the famous pediatrician, Benjamin Spock. And Marjorie Spock was trying to grow all of her food on her own two-acre piece of land in eastern Long Island. And she didn't want it sprayed with DDT. And her property got sprayed anyway. She was a person of some means. She decided to take it to court and she got a judge to agree to hear the case. There was an article about it in a local New York paper and Carson heard about it. And when Marjorie Spock heard that Rachel Carson was interested, she just flooded her with articles, journal articles, letters, just a ton of material. And once Carson started going through Spock's papers, and she would write back to Spock saying, like, this is a gold mine. Holy moly, there's so much important information here. And 
to make a very long, long story short, <laughs> so Silent Spring began for Rachel Carson. You always want a sort of obsessive person of means to be a source for you <laughs> when you're looking into a story. So true. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that Spock had, which was like apparently really unusual, she had a, a fax machine, but it was oh. called like a thermo fax. And so she could like make copies and like send text transmissions from her house. <laughs> and, you know, in 1957, this was like unheard of. We've been talking about DDT, but we've asked what it is, where it came from, but we should just establish the actual science that was uncovered here. It's bad for people, right? DDT is not a miracle chemical. It's harmful. Yeah. So I will say that now we accept the idea that DDT is a toxic chemical. It's been linked to several different kinds of cancer. And it is also persistent, which means that once it gets into a living body, and this can be a person or an animal, it builds up in their fat. And so it sticks around for a long time and you can accumulate more and more and more of it over time. And so you can take in very, very little for a very long time and then all of a sudden have a toxic dose in your body. Was there any research conducted into its effects on people? There were some studies carried out by some scientists at the CDC who fed DDT to prisoners. The prisoners were reportedly on paper, all quote unquote volunteers who signed up to swallow Mm. DDT in a cup of milk every morning. And yeah, the scientist who led these studies insisted that it was absolutely harmless. He fed the DDT to these prisoners for 18 months and then followed up with them a few years later. And he insisted that They were in perfect health. But when Carson looked at those studies, actually, she was very skeptical and she looked really closely at them and realized that some of their findings had been exaggerated and misrepresented, namely that the the scientist who carried out the study said that all these men had stayed in the study and didn't have any ill effects. And she noted, actually, some of those men dropped out of the study and you didn't ask them questions about this and you didn't test these kinds of things about their health. So we knew and didn't know for a while the full extent of its effects on people. But by the 90s, 2000s, now jumping way ahead in time, we certainly did. So DDT is not the miracle chemical that it was promoted as. After a short break, we'll talk about what happened when Rachel Carson revealed that to the world. Before the break, we talked about this huge enthusiasm for DDT after World War II. But Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, told a very different story. Elena, what happened as a result of her reporting? One of the effects of her book was to bring loads of attention to these pesticides and in particular their downsides. They launched new studies, but there were also high-level investigations. President Kennedy launched an investigation into pesticides. A lot of states, like my state, California, did. And very, very quickly, lawmakers all over the place just decided to introduce laws to curb or stop the use of some of the chemicals that she listed in the book, DDT among them. And as you can imagine, this was incredibly controversial. And the folks who were manufacturing and selling these pesticides weren't so keen to see them banned and coming under fire. And so they pushed back. I'm interested in the kinds of arguments they made, because reading your book, it struck me almost that the manufacturers of DDT did something we're pretty familiar with from the tobacco industry. Yeah, they did. And 
one of the first things that they did was they attacked Carson herself. And Mm -hmm. they said, like, this is not a trustworthy person. She's not a scientist. They called her a communist and a spinster. I mean, they (laughs) just tried to take her personally down. And then the other thing that they did was just deny everything. And this is something that the tobacco industry became famous for later. They said, oh, what are you talking about? Everything's a chemical. Like, (laughs) don't worry. Grandma (laughs) uses chemicals in home canning. They're harmless. Chemicals are only dangerous in large, large doses. But even water is dangerous in large doses. But, you know, behind the scenes, they were having these monthly meetings talking about like, oh, shoot, what are we going to (laughs) do? Like, this is a big problem. Something I thought was interesting that they did, because I think it still shapes the way we think a lot about diseases like cancer now, is that the DDT companies basically tried to say, oh, well, if you have cancer, that's because you have a bad diet or it's your lifestyle or like you, you you know, lost the genetic lottery. And these are all things that we still say about cancer. And undoubtedly, they are all factors. But being exposed to poisons every day that we cannot control at all, whether it's through pollution in the air or chemicals in our food, surely also is going to be a huge factor in causing diseases like cancer. And those companies kind of won the argument long term in that those are not the first things we go to when we hear about a cancer diagnosis. Yeah, and I think that's actually a really good point, that in the long term, they were the winners in that kind of communications war. And the interesting thing is, for a long time, they were able to say, like, there just isn't enough evidence linking chemicals to cancer. And that just created the space for this other set of arguments to take hold. Were there any particular groups behind these arguments? In the late 70s, there's this organization that gets launched, the American Council on Science and Health. And one of their main objectives is to convince the American public that their personal lifestyle choices are the reasons why Mm -hmm. cancer in their view, seems to be on the rise because in their view, cancer is only on the rise because we're getting better at diagnosing it and because people are living longer and we're seeing more of it as a result. And so they popularize the ideas that it's about lifestyle, it's about diet, lack of exercise at the same time that folks in the industries themselves were spreading the idea that, hold on, there's not enough evidence yet. We're still studying this. And that's really become the dominant approach. I think you're right. I think in the the long run, that view has prevailed. And it's super complicated to say why, because part of it is also that the whole smoking issue is happening concurrent with all of this. Mm -hmm. And there is one really powerful example of where personal behaviors did contribute to a lot of cancer. So it was easy for different industries to kind of point fingers at each other in a way. And it was easy to at least kind of hold up this one example that seemed to prove without a doubt that personal behavior was the main source of the problem. That's the other thing I find fascinating about this DDT story is that clearly you have a villain here, which is the people making DDT. But when you look at that period and history, there are like dozens of other industries doing equally harmful things. It's almost like this explosion of poisons and toxins wherever you look. 
whether it's in cleaning products or in pesticides or in the food supply with the switch to processed foods. Another thing we were talking about in our meeting is like the abundant use of asbestos. I mean, almost everywhere you turned in the 1950s, you're basically running straight into a highly toxic or carcinogenic. Leaded gasoline. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That could be a whole other episode. Leaded gasoline. (laughs) And so it is almost surprising that this issue ended up getting so much traction because there's such a roster of other culprits out there at the same time. Yeah. And I think there are a couple of reasons for this. So on the one hand, there are reasons that have to do with the fact that chemicals at the time seemed to solve a lot of problems, and then they did solve a lot of problems. That's number one. The manufacturers of DDT in the 1940s, they were the big guys, like you know, Sherwin-Williams was one that we still know of today. Monsanto was another, for example, Dow Chemical. But it was also manufactured by what we would now call like mom and pop shops. Like people would just make it in their shop and then Mm -hmm. sell it to their local community. Mm -hmm. And so it had like an element of familiarity and trust on the one hand. Mm -hmm. But then on the other side of it, this is linked to something sort of paradoxical. DDT was off patent and the large companies started to see DDT as a money loser. There was mm-hmm. just too much mm-hmm. competition. It was generic, yeah. It was generic, <laughs> yeah. Everybody was making it. And some of them were like, we're actually losing money, so let's stop making this. Let's invest in other chemicals. And DDT kind of became the chemical industry's fall guy after a while. Like, mm. let that one take all the blame. Everybody knows about it because it was so famous. Mm-hmm. So let's just, you know, let it be banned, which it ultimately was effectively in 1972, And then we'll make some new, you know, patented proprietary substitutes and sell those at a much higher profit. Yeah. So it it served them too. That's so interesting. If there had been a patent in place or intellectual property for someone to defend, we may never have seen that ban. It's true. That's actually very, very true. Yeah. And it may have been used really differently too. It simply may have been far less accessible. Its accessibility is also what made it less effective over time because insects started to develop resistance to it. So there's that other part of the story too, that the more DDT we used, the more we had to use because it just wasn't killing bugs as efficiently in the 50s and the 60s as it had been in the 40s. So we really kind of painted ourselves into a corner. I'm amazed sometimes that we survived the 20th century. Uh, <laughs> well, not everyone did. <laughs> I mean, not everyone did. I meant collectively. Yeah, not everyone did. And we're going to look that way the 21st, too. Yeah. So. I'm at the age where in the late 80s, early 90s, we were celebrating these wins like – Acid rain. We we fixed acid rain. Banned DDT. <laughs> yeah. Like everything's on the up and up. Yeah. The animals are coming back. Everything's going great. <laughs> and DDT is still treated as, I think, like a, a victory, a success for regulation. There was public outrage. The government responded and it got this dangerous chemical off the streets. <laughs> the law and order approach to DDT. Yes. Yeah, exactly. yes. <laughs> At the same time, I remember reading a few things, mostly in the conservative press and around in the 90s being like, we need to bring back DDT. Mm-hmm. There was a lobby to bring it back. Yeah. Yeah. And this is exactly why I wanted to write a book on this, because like you, I remember having that same feeling in the late 80s and 90s. We had stopped so many problems. We had banned DDT and, you know, mm-hmm. acid rain, the ozone layer, the whales were back. <laughs> we were doing okay. And then, you know, I was a 
in the early 2000s, a graduate student in public health, and I was at a conference and I was attending a talk on malaria. And all of a sudden, the folks at the front of the room, the experts were saying, you know, we really need to bring DDT back. And everybody in the room was like, oh, yeah, we need to bring back DDT. And I was like, what? What, what did I miss? The thing we banned because it like killed all the bald eagles? Mm. And then it was all over the place. And I think what made that argument powerful in the early 2000s was that it was coming from a couple of places. It was coming from public health experts, like people who were devoted to public health and global health and genuinely interested in controlling skyrocketing rates of malaria, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. At the same time, the same argument was picked up by conservative pundits and people who weren't exactly transparent about who they were, but were also saying, yeah, we need to bring back DDT. What was their interest in bringing this back? They were saying it for a completely different reason. On the surface, they said we need to bring back DDT because it's the best way to control malaria. But underneath, they saw DDT as this important kind of morality tale. One of the folks who was very active in spreading the idea that we needed to bring back DDT was somebody named Roger Bate, who had founded something called the European Science and Environment Forum. And he wrote op-eds about DDT for places like the Los Angeles Times and the Wall Street Journal. His argument was... DDT's story is this a great example of how the liberals got things wrong. We can re-spin this story and show that, you know, the Greens wanted DDT banned to save birds. And then by banning it, it ended up causing millions of preventable deaths around the world due to malaria. And if we hadn't banned DDT to begin with, millions of more people, uh, especially children in sub-Saharan Africa, would be alive today. And he saw this as a way to divide liberals among themselves, just divide them and pit them against each other. It becomes a DDT is just a club with which to hit the, you know, idea of regulation. Absolutely. The idea of regulation and then added on to that, the idea that we should trust environmentalists and those who believe in supporting environmental values. The irony is that they weren't successful in bringing DDT back. Like they didn't necessarily even really want to bring DDT back. Mm. We didn't bring it back. We brought back the idea <laughs> that it was valuable, wrongly banned. Ironically, while I was working on this book, we actually started finding long lost DDT and some scientists in my home state of California over the last couple of years have actually found loads of it that was dumped decades and decades ago off the coast of California, and now barrels and just deposits of DDT are in the Pacific that we're aware of, that we weren't aware of, you know, just 10, 15 years ago. And we've just barely started to find what's out there. It seems to be linked now to disease among marine mammals, particularly the California sea lion. So DDT is, in a way, coming back, not in the way that the conservative pundits of the early 2000s were hoping for. But yeah. Are there any companies that are allowed to use DDT now, new uses of DDT? Not this kind of what you call legacy DDT, stuff that was dumped. Yeah. So in the U.S., we still have an exception that allows DDT to be used in a public health emergency. So 
if there was some epidemic that was transmitted by insects and we felt we had no better way kill off those insects and protect public health, DDT is still allowable for that. There are other places in the globe. We now have a global convention, the Stockholm Convention, that countries the world over have signed on to agreeing to phase out DDT's use among a list of other persistent chemicals. And there are now very, very places where DDT is used and only one place that's manufacturing it left in the world. But it's allowable again under that convention for public health use too. So would that be, for instance, if there was some global pandemic of Zika, the DDT might be deployed to fight that? It absolutely could be. And in fact, when Zika was here in the U.S., you know, five, six years ago, there were folks saying, is now the time to use DDT? Is now the time to bring it back? And there were some people, very small <laughs> number of people who were like, yeah, this is the moment. And then others who were like, you know, we have better chemicals now. We don't need to resort to that. So the title of your book includes the phrase, the toxic return of DDT. What do you mean by that? By the late 1970s, we were so aware of the ecological harms of DDT that we agreed that communities and areas that were heavily contaminated with it should be cleaned up. We set these cleanup targets, you know, these levels that we wanted to bring DDT down to. And now in the 2020s, looking back, we realized those levels aren't low enough. And DDT is still in fish. We can still, in some heavily contaminated communities, still find it in birds and still at toxic levels. And this is decades after it was banned. Epidemiological studies show that there are intergenerational effects of DDT, that women who were exposed to it when they were young in the 40s and 50s seem to have an elevated risk of breast cancer. But ongoing research has shown that their daughters and then their granddaughters seem to have elevated risks or higher frequency of risk factors for that disease too. And so now we're talking two generations down the line. So you write about the toxic return of DDT and that we're finding these stockpiles of it that were dumped in the ocean years and years ago. But in an important sense, banning it didn't mean it actually just disappeared from our own environment. We developed these chemicals. We in some cases, think we solve these problems through bans and through environmental cleanups, like I mentioned before. But the chemicals, in some cases, don't just go away. DDT, part of its power was its staying power, its persistence. We're still dealing with that persistence. So for me, it's really a lesson about these kinds of unintended consequences and how long down the line we'll still be figuring out exactly the problems we created and the extent and duration of them too. I think what the story of DDT really shows is that banning something is this kind of last resort that is better than not banning it because you stop creating DDT, but you really have to do what those scientists in the 1940s were asking, which is wait, regulate this before it poisons anyone. Before you spray it across the entire globe. And before you create like these huge reserves of it that you then have to go and bury in the sea, just waiting for them to leak into the ocean and, and leach into the soil. Caution is the best way to approach all of this stuff. Yeah. And if you're going to implement a ban, what are you banning? Are you banning the thing? Are you banning the practice that it's used in? Pesticide use actually only went up after we banned mm. DDT. 
And we used, we replaced it, or we used replacement pesticides that were just as toxic, but, you know, on a different timescale and to different people who were exposed in different ways. So, yeah, part of the, I guess, moral of the story is wait, move more slowly. Part of it is also like, think about the larger system in which this technology is embedded in. And I guess the other moral of the story, going back to the bring back DDT movement of the early 2000s, is that know that these technologies have different meanings for different actors and that there may be people weighing in with their opinions who are just playing some other game entirely. (laughs) And we may not even be aware. And we're listening, but we might not be aware. Thank you, Elena. Thank you. Thank you, guys. The Politics of Everything is co-produced by TalkHouse. Emily Cook is our executive producer. Myron Kaplan is our audio editor. If you enjoyed The Politics of Everything and you want to support the show, one thing you can do is go to wherever you listen to the podcast and rate it. Every rating and review helps. Thanks for listening.